Hi everyone, thanks for tuning in today. Uh, we hope that it's an encouraging time for you and your family this morning. Um, we're doing something slightly different this time. We're trying to expand our videos, expand our uh, quote-unquote services. We've got uh, Sam giving a pastoral prayer. Jessica has put together some music for you to sing along with that we're going to integrate into the video. And so we hope that uh, this time that you spend uh, either by yourself or with your family, that it will be a beneficial time, an encouraging time uh, in the Word, time worshiping our great God and Savior. Even though we are not uh, together, we can still worship together in spirit and in truth. So uh, I hope it's an encouraging time for you. Before we pray, I'd like to read a part of Psalm 34. I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be in my lips. My soul will boast in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. 
Glorify the Lord with me. Let us extol, extol his name forever. Let's pray. Father, our purpose today is simply to extol you and to praise you. We would ask today, Lord, that you would enable us to set aside those things that would distract us, the very things that are the cares of this world, the, the things that so, Father, take preeminent um, even in our thoughts. We would ask that you would enable us today as we worship you to focus on you the one who is our refuge and our strength, the one that can only, uh, uh, the one who we ought to extol, extol and which we do that. Help us now as we look into your word, in Jesus' name, amen. I'm reasonably sure we all know that if we were actually gathered together, in the auditorium. I would come up the platform steps, I would assume my place behind the podium, and there'd be a moment of stillness, which would be broken by Pastor Sam off to my right, uh, yelling out, get a haircut. All of you would chuckle politely, not because Sam is funny, uh, but because whenever someone makes any kind of an attempt at a joke in church, everyone feels the need to respond with some kind of laughter. You would chuckle. I would have a moment while you were laughing to think of some sort of witty retort, which I would provide to a crescendo of hilarious laughter. And then I would try to dial it back and we would begin to enter into the text. So. Now that those preliminaries are done, uh, yes, I have mastered the art of cutting my own hair during this COVID crisis. I used to cut my own hair, uh, and now clearly I've uh, excelled in that particular domain. And also, we'll be saving uh, dozens of dollars a year from now on, which is quite a positive thing. So, this morning, uh, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 11. Now, most of us are familiar with this particular passage, and even if we're not familiar with everything in the book of Hebrews, this is one passage that people come to again and again and again. And so I trust that you're familiar with it, but we do want to work through it together probably over the next three weeks. Uh, this morning, I just want us to look at the first seven verses of Hebrews chapter 11. This is the word of God. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about we, what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. By faith Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, Abel still speaks, even though he is dead. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible 
to please God, because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. Well, as mentioned, this is a passage that many of us are familiar with. It starts into this long chapter about sort of faith in practice, and sometimes referred to as you know the Hall of Faith uh, in today's sort of evangelical Western church circles. You're going to be given a litany of illustrations and examples from the Old Testament scriptures about people who obeyed God, who were commended as righteous, who did some amazing things because they trusted in the promises and power and provision of God. And so in this sense, actually, this is a very timely text for us today, uh, as we are increasingly hearing about, you know, the, the, the new normal and unprecedented times and, you know, these uh, challenging times and all of the rest. I mean, we, we realize that right now we are, are living in a situation unlike anything we've ever experienced before. And a lot of that also brings together uncertainty for the future. No one really knows how long this is going to last. No one knows, really, if there's going to be a second wave of this that hits you know, a few months from now, or what the entailments and consequences and repercussions of that event may or may not be. Uh, we really have no idea, you know, what the next year or two will look like uh, in the world. And in some ways, that's a, a salutary reminder that we never know uh, what a year is going to bring forth, let alone what a day is going to bring forth. I mean, certainly when we started into 2020, nobody thought that in starting in, in mid-March, we would have at least three months without any church services. Nobody could have imagined that, really. And so we realize that as we walk day by day, we, we need to trust God because we simply do not know uh, what the events of our life are going to be. And so we need to learn to walk by faith. Now, this text, uh, this chapter in, in its totality, is bracketed by the idea of faith and being commended for it. So verse 1 says, Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. And if you look all the way down to verse 39, the end of the chapter, it says, These were all commended for their faith. So this chapter, this long section, hangs together on the basis of having faith and being commended for it. These are like the bookends or the brackets of the text. So that's the, the, the interpretive framework that you're supposed to look at all these characters. You're supposed to see they are commended. They are blessed by God. They are rewarded by God because of their faith. So, so implicit in that is sort of the question, do you have faith? Are you exercising faith? I mean, when Jesus uh, stills the storm, remember he's in the boat uh, sleeping, his disciples are terrified by the wind and the waves. Master, don't you care that we're going to drown? And Jesus gets up and he rebukes the wind and the waves. Then he turns to them and says, you know, where is your faith? 
where is the evidence of your faith? Where is your trust in action? Kind of like James says, look, you say you have faith, that's great. And you may even have some doctrinal understanding, that's great too. But you show me your faith, how, how are you going to do that? You have to have actions. Deeds demonstrate faith. And so although we are saved by God's grace, and we are saved you know, by grace through faith, we do, not, um, we do not simply hold back with some sort of mental assent or some sort of mental belief in God. It's not just uh, accepting various theological propositions. It's, it's demonstrative. You, you act. Faith, real living faith is vibrant. It compels you to live life in different ways than you would if you didn't have faith. And it's one of the things as you go through this chapter, one of the things that you see is these people lived a lifestyle very different from the people around them precisely because they were trusting in God. When you don't trust God, you... you refrain from acting in certain ways. When you do trust God, you'll be emboldened to commit yourself to Him. So the question that runs implicitly through this entire chapter is, do you have faith? And if you do, it will be demonstrated by action. It will be observable in your life. Now, the author gives you what is not a dictionary definition but sort of a, a, a working definition or understanding of what faith looks like in practice. Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Now, uh, immediately, there's a debate about translation uh, at this point. Um, there is a translation which is objective. There's a translation uh, which sort of brings across more of a subjective force of the language. So the first one, sort of the objective reading, would be sort of faith is the foundation in what we hope for. So our hope is sort of built on this, this objective foundation. Or it may be subjective, which is how the NIV translates it. Instead of now faith is sort of the foundation of our hope, it's faith is confidence, that subjective emotional response. It's the confidence in what we hope for. Okay. Now, some scholars think that actually this objective and subjective interpretation, uh, they're, they're compatible with each other. There may be layered meanings intentionally in the use of the language and grammar. No matter what, the idea is that when we have faith, we are committed to God in such a way that we hope and long for the fulfillment of his promises. That is, we are longing to see fulfilled things he has promised, but we do not yet see. And this is actually one of the, the major themes in Hebrews in the last few chapters. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the promises of God. So he's the fulfillment of tabernacle. He's the fulfillment of sacrifice. He's the fulfillment of high priest. He's the son of God, uh, who is the creator of the universe, but he's also the redeemer of the people of God. And so he is not only transcendent, although he is, he's also imminent. He's at work here in this world. So 
we trust that God is going to fulfill every single one of his promises through Jesus Christ in a consummated sense. That is, right now we look around and we do not see the new heavens and new earth. We do not see sin ultimately and totally defeated. And, and actually, for that one, you don't even need to look around. You just need to look inside of your own heart. You know perfectly well that sin is not completely and totally defeated because you yourself sin. And, and if you don't think that you sin, that's a sin in itself. Uh, because it's either you're blinded by your own pride or you have no concept whatsoever of how holy God is in relation to you. You just have no introspective awareness of what's going on in your mind and heart and motives. No, we, we know that sin has not yet been fully put away. Conquered by Christ, yes. Put away for all time and removed from us forever, not yet. And so we long for those days. You know, we, we long for God to bring to fulfillment all of the promises that he has made. We, we long for the, the fulfillment of his eternal plan that he is working out in time and space. One day we are going to see it with our own eyes. And, and that's why hope in the, in the New Testament is not merely wishful thinking. So very often we hope for things. We, and we, when we use the word hope, we use it in a very watered-down, uh, anemic, weak kind of way. So we can say things like, um, we hope that the professional sports leagues can resume and we'll be able to watch professional sports again, you know, this summer, let's say. Um, we, uh, I hope that one day someone is going to leave me uh, $10 million in their will. And that, that's, that's a hint for some of you out there who might have that kind of you know, financial resource. Uh, I, I can hope for all kinds of things. And, and that's sort of merely, uh, you, you can substitute you know, the word wishing in place of the word hoping in, in those uh, situations. But in the Bible, hope is not merely wishful thinking for something that's unlikely to happen, but you want to happen. Hope is sure. Hope is certain. So that we hope for eternal life. Not because eternal life is in doubt, if you have faith in Christ, but because you long for the fulfillment of it. Your desire is, is sort of straining towards what God has promised to give you, and you want it, and you should want it. Hey, there's nothing wrong with desiring the rewards and blessings and bounty of God. I mean, you, you, you see the bounty. How, how can you not desire it? How can you not love it? How can you not yearn for it and long for it with all of your, with all of your heart? No, God, God presents staggering blessings. And we should desire them. C.S. Lewis has said, and John Piper has sort of picked up this mantra in a lot of his writing and, and speaking, you know, our, our desires for the things of God are never too strong, but they're often too weak. Our, our, our passion for the things of God is, is never intense enough. The, the, the flame for it never burns brightly enough. 
And often it's, it's, it's shamefully low, burning at low ember. No, we want the fullness of the tide, not, not its ebb. We want the, uh, we, we want the, the, the fullness of you know, the full moon, <laughs> not, not when it disappears you know, for, for a few days. No, we, we don't want to restrain our passion for the things of God. We want to be excited by them and to pursue them. And of course, one of the things that, that Hebrews makes very clear is that it's not just the things of God, the blessings of God that we desire. The ultimate blessing of the new covenant is I will be their God and they will be my people. That is, we desire God himself. That's a litmus test of spiritual health. Do you desire God? Not just the things that God creates, not just the things that God provides. Do you desire God himself? Faith is, is that trust and commitment which grounds our hope, which gives life to our hope, uh, which sort of puts a, puts a spring in our steps, spiritually speaking, causes us to, to seek God, even though right now we walk by faith and not by sight. We don't see everything. That's what we're doing. And the author of Hebrews is saying, look, that's what you're doing in the New Covenant era, but that's what, that's what the people who have pleased God have always done. They've always lived this way. Verse 3 takes you right back to Genesis 1. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. Now, interestingly enough, Today, you can make very compelling philosophical arguments about the creation of the universe requiring a creator. You, you can make, uh, well, that's actually a tautology. Uh, I should have said, you, you can make very compelling uh, arguments that the existence of the universe requires a creator. There's a, there's a a variety of good reasons for that, actually, uh, logically speaking. Um, we also know, besides just sort of the, the, the rational arguments that can be made for the universe beginning to exist and therefore requiring a, a cause to bring it into existence, we can argue from the very nature of causality and causal relations themselves that the universe requires a cause in order to exist, some kind of creator and designer. But beyond that, the more we learn about uh, the universe and, and how incredibly calibrated it is, how incredible it is that all of the, the, the so-called natural laws of the universe, gravity and, and electrochemical uh, reactions and all the various things that are going on, all of these things are just, they're just balanced in such a precise and incredible way to allow for the universe to exist and to function and for life to be produced. The more we learn about the universe, the more we should be absolutely blown away by the, by the genius and the brilliance of the designer of it. But we can take all of those arguments and we can set them aside. 
And we can say, long before people were formulating philosophical and scientific arguments about the existence of God, from the very beginning, the ultimate reason for believing that the universe was created by God is still the ultimate reason today. That reason is this. God created the universe. And he created human beings in his image. And then he told them that he created the universe. In other words, the ultimate authority for why we believe that God created the universe is, is not our philosophical argumentation. It's not, it's not the scientific data, as compelling as a lot of that is. It's that God spoke. God, God communicated with Adam and Eve. God revealed himself to them, told him what he was like, told them what he had done. Revealed himself as their creator. And so ultimately, at the end of the day, we trust that the universe was created by God, that it was formed at God's command, because we trust God, the one who has said so. We believe in God. We accept his word. We don't resist it or rebel against it. We approach it by faith. We believe that what is seen all around us was not made out of what was visible. Some is called creation ex nihilo, that is, creation out of nothing. God is the only thing, the only being in all of reality who is self-existent. That is, he exists independently of everything else. I mean, think about all the things that you need to, to exist. Parents, for one, uh, you could bump that back to grandparents and great-grandparents you know, all for, for a long, long, long time. Uh, you need water, you need oxygen, you need food, you need shelter, you need temperatures in a very, very thin range or you'll die. Uh, there's all kinds of things that you need to stay alive. God needs nothing. There are never any external inputs into God to make him survive. He is self-existent. The power to exist is internal to himself, and everything else depends on him. Nothing else is like that. He is transcendent and holy in that majestic way. Now, we believe that what was made was made by God out of nothing, and we take that ultimately on the basis of faith. Now, moving then forward through Genesis, you have creation, and then you have Abel as your next example in verse 4. By faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, Abel still speaks, even though he is dead. Now, it's been common in the past for people to take uh, God being displeased with Cain's offering and being favorable towards Abel's because Abel brings uh, an animal sacrifice and Cain brings something from the garden, some vegetables, some crops. And this has been taken to show that you know blood is required and all of the rest. Personally, I think that that's a mistaken reading of the text. 
Nowhere is there any hint that Cain is rejected because of what he brought any more than Cain is, other than Abel is accepted because of the, the, the species of offering that he brought. Rather, it's the attitude behind it. Uh, we know in the Old Testament law, God commanded animal sacrifices and grain offerings as well. So, so God commanded uh, different types of offerings. Some were animal sacrifices, some were, were uh, vegetable offerings, grain offerings, produce, plants, fruit. And so uh, it's not merely that it wasn't uh, blood. That, that's not the point in Genesis 4. It's the attitude. So we're told in Genesis 4.3, in the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. That's the point. Cain brings some of the fruit, some of the fruits of the soil. It's, there's no real care or attention given. He, he basically brings God the leftovers of what he has. Abel takes the best of the firstborn. That is, Abel gives God his very, very best. It's, it's not the species. In the same way, if Cain had brought the very, very best of his garden, and Abel had just kind of gone out and, and, and found a lamb or two, you know, sort of sickly and weak, and brought them, it, God wouldn't have said, well, Abel, you know, at least that's the right species. I'm pleased with your offer. Cain, even though you spent all this time bringing me your best, I'm angry because it's a, it's a pear or a plum or like whatever it is that you're growing and trying to, to bring to God. It's the attitude. Are you bringing God your best? Or are you giving him the leftovers, taking care of yourself first, and sort of just giving him the spillover uh, of what's remaining. It, it's the attitude. And here, clearly, the author of Hebrews is not trying to say, look, you need to be like Abel and bring the right type of sacrifice. He's not saying Abel was accepted because it was, it was uh, part of the offering came from the flock. He's saying Abel was accepted. Why? By faith, he was commended as righteous. And so it's his faith, it's his attitude, it's his attitude of trust in God, which is displayed in trying to give God his very best. And as a result, by faith, Abel still speaks, even though he is dead. He still speaks, even though he is dead. He doesn't speak because he was martyred. He doesn't speak because he was slain. He speaks because his testimony of faith continues. Many of you, probably all of us, can think of godly people who have gone before us, who have lived their lives, who have died and gone into the presence of the Lord, and their legacy of faith still speaks to us. They may not have been murdered by an angry and jealous individual. They may not be the, 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 the victim of fratricide. But nonetheless, their, their faith in God still impacts us years, maybe decades later, after their death. And so it's not the way that Abel died which still speaks. It's his faith in God. And that's the legacy that in your life you have the opportunity to leave as well. 
Live your life by faith, and your witness will still speak to upcoming generations. So you move from Cain and Abel uh, to verse 5. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. Now, Enoch falls like an absolute bombshell into Genesis chapter 5. So I'm going to turn there. Uh, I'm not going to read all of the verses in Genesis chapter 5. Uh, but the context here is actually quite important. Death has come into the world uh, in Genesis 3. And then you've just had you know, Abel, who was killed by Cain. And now you have verse or chapter 5, this written account of Adam's family line. So God creates mankind. Verse 3, Adam lived 130 years. He had a son in his own likeness, in his own image, and he named him Seth. After Seth was born, Adam lived 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Adam lived a total of 930 years, and then he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he became the father of Enosh. He lives 807 years. Altogether, Seth lived a total of 912 years, and then he died. Enosh lived 90 years, became the father of Kenan. Enosh lived a total of 905 years, then he died. Kenan becomes the father of Mahalalel, then he lives a total of 910 years, and then he died. Mahalalel becomes the father of Jared, lives 895 years, then he died. Jared lives 162 years, becomes the father of Enoch, lives a total of 962 years, and then he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he became the father of Methuselah. After he became the father of Methuselah, Enoch walked faithfully with God 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Enoch lived a total of 365 years. Enoch walked faithfully with God. Then he was no more because God took him away. When Methuselah lived 187 years, he became the father of Lamech. Altogether, Methuselah lived a total of 969 years. Then he died. Lamech lived 182 years, had a son. He lived 777 years, then he died. You see, the, the point is that in a world characterized by death, those who walk faithfully with God experience nothing but life. Enoch stands as an example of how faith in God saves from death. Now, most people, of course, have faith in God, are going to die physically. But from the very beginning, you get this example in Genesis that faith triumphs over death. It is also extraordinarily significant that Enoch is the seventh from Adam. When you have this, you have this divergence in Genesis, where you have the, sort of this godly line and this wicked line. Enoch is the seventh from Adam. Now, later you'll have a grandson, Lamech. So there's, there's two Lamechs in the text. But if you move back to Genesis 4, there's a, there's a different Lamech. And Lamech is also the seventh from Adam, but in the other line. And so if you look at Genesis 4, uh, verse 23, Lamech said to his wives, 
Adenzilla, listen to me. Wives of Lamech, hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times and Lamech 77 times. So he, he marries multiple women. And listen to his vengeance. You know, basically, I've killed a man for wounding me. You, you injure me, I'll kill you. If there is vengeance against Cain seven times, and if anyone harms me, I'm going to harm them 77 times more. It's bloodthirsty. It's revengeful. It's violent. You get a hint probably of being sort of sexually uncontrolled as well. And so you have your choice. Which line do you want to be in? Which camp do you want to be in? The seventh from Adam either terminates at Lamech or it terminates at Enoch. You choose which stream, which genealogy you want to be in. The seed of the woman or the seed of the serpent. The, the, the seed of the woman is going to crush the serpent's head. Whose offspring do you want to be? Do you want to follow in the line of the serpent sort of spiraling down into wickedness and depravity and violence and lust? Or do you want to, do you want to walk faithfully, faithfully with God and conquer death? Those are your choices in Genesis. By faith, Enoch walked with God, and God took him away, and he was no more. Without faith, it is impossible to please God, verse 6. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. We talked about this a little bit at the beginning. Uh, you need to believe in God. You need to believe in order to have the motivation to follow him. God is a God who rewards his followers. This is not sort of a, being a mercenary. This is pursuing what your heart genuinely desires in God. You have to believe he exists and that he also rewards those who earnestly seek him. Being a Christian is not a hobby. Uh, I, whatever your job is, being a Christian isn't just a full-time job. Being a Christian is a whole life, all the time. It, it is who you are. You can't just sort of be apathetic. You, you can't just sort of, quote-unquote, seek God a little bit on a Sunday morning. Or, or, you know, at a, a small group Bible study. No, if you're going to seek God, you're going to seek him passionately. He, he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Seek him with all of their heart. That, that's what we ought to do. Then, coming out of that death chapter in Genesis 5, you have Noah. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. Noah, we know, lives in a terribly wicked generation. I mean, you know, you know the story very well. He's called to build the ark, and he does, in many ways, about the most foolish task you could imagine. You know, building this, this especially in the, 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 by the standards of the day, the most ridiculously enormous boat imaginable. And he works on it, and he's mocked, and it would be awfully hard, frankly, it would be awfully hard to be Noah's neighbor and not mock him in a lot of ways. If you honestly search your heart, 
Do, do you really think you would, you would imagine yourself back then thinking this was the same thing that he was doing? I mean, unless God worked in your heart to allow you to, to understand his word through Noah, the preacher of righteousness, uh, you, you think he was just absolutely insane. But he, he builds this boat. He responds to things not yet seen. There's going to be a flood coming. So he starts building this boat. He responds in holy fear or sort of reverent fear, reverent awe. Not because he had seen it, but because he had heard it. That is, he had heard the word of God. He had heard God's instruction. And he fears God. So when God speaks, he obeys. That's faith in action. I don't see it, but God has said it, so I'll do it. By his faith, he condemned the world. That is, he, served, he stood as a witness for years to the world as he built this boat and, and explained what he was doing. Trusting in God. He became heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. I mean, one of the things that's fascinating about, about that Noah story, of course, is that uh, the, no, the flood narrative sets you back to Genesis 1. When the entire world is covered by water in, in the language of the, in the sort of the framework imagery of the text, when the entire world is covered by water, you're reset back to Genesis 1-2, where the world is this kind of like wobbly, watery, amorphous kind of sphere before God starts separating the water from the dry land. Everything's sort of just sort of watery, and the Spirit of God is sort of hovering over the water. So just start to, then he's going to start forming it. You, you, you have sin enter into the world, this downward cycle of depravity and death and violence and all of the rest. And how many times have we thought or said or heard someone say, if we could just wipe the slate clean, everything would be fine. If we could just tear everything down to the foundations and rebuild our education system, our healthcare system, all our economy, all the rest, then everything would be, we'd live in this sort of utopian world. Genesis 6, in many ways and following, God literally wipes the slate clean. Water is, a, is an agent of purification. I mean, judgment in that text, of course, but it, 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 it washes, it cleanses. You have this defiled world. God, God washes it clean. He resets the world back to Genesis 1, verse 2. The problem isn't the world. The problem is the human heart. Sin was one of the passengers on the ark, and sin survived the flood. And so when Noah and his family come off the ark, sin comes with them. And one of the ways we know this is, is Noah offers sacrifices, that's it's great. And then Noah proceeds to plant a vineyard, harvests the grapes, makes wine, and gets drunk, and lies naked and exposed to his children. Now, Noah is, in a sense, obviously a second Adam figure. So you have Adam, the, the caretaker of the first world formed out of water. Noah is the caretaker responsible for the second world formed out of water. Adam sins by eating the fruit. Noah sins by drinking the juice of the fruit. 
when Adam sins, one of the first things that's exposed is his nakedness. When Noah sins, the first thing that's exposed is his nakedness. And, and so you have this sort of this setup where Noah is recapitulating Adam. That is, he, he's the second Adam, and he's failing just like Adam in exactly the same categories. Problem isn't the, the world around us. It's not society. Social structures can be evil. Social structures can help perpetuate evil, but social structures don't create evil that's not there already. The, the evil comes from inside. In fact, it's pretty obvious. Social structures are the constructs that we make. You, you don't go sort of walking off into the middle of the wilderness and sort of look around and go, oh my goodness, look at all these social structures I need to abide by. Human beings create social structures. And of course, social structures pressure and conform us in various ways. But if there are evil societal structures, it's because evil people have created evil societal structures, which then, which then take on a life of their own. No, it's, it's not the world around us. It's really convenient to, to, to think that it is. It's us. It's our own hearts. Nevertheless, despite his sin, despite his failure, Noah is an heir of righteousness because of his faith. No one is saved because they are perfect. We are saved by the great grace of God through the righteousness of the high priest of Hebrews because of his sacrifice of himself. We're saved through righteousness and we appropriate righteousness. We cling to righteousness by faith. So we are not saved because we're perfect at all. We're saved because Christ is perfect. And in faith we hold on to his righteousness and, becomes, and become heirs of it. So what about us? Do we just fit perfectly into this society like everyone else? Do we fear all the same things? Do we do all the same things? Just listen to all the same music, watch all the same shows, spend our money in all the same ways, have the same type of goals? Or does our life look like we're actually living by faith in God and trusting Him? Note also the very different ends of earthly life. Abel, because he is righteous, is murdered by his brother. Enoch, because he is righteous, is spared death entirely. You, you can't tell how much faith someone has on the basis of the outcome of their earthly life. Someone may be dirt poor and immensely pleasing to God because of their faith. And someone may be immensely rich and have no faith at all. Someone might have tremendous faith and, and experience enormous heartache and pain day after day. Someone might be very happy and, and, and have not seem to have a care in the world and have no trust in God. No, we, we look for things unseen. We don't judge on the basis of what we see around us in this world. We trust God. And, and then we know 
even if you're murdered or even if you're spared death, the end, end result is the same. That is eternal life. That there is righteousness and life and blessing and the presence of God himself for everyone who has faith in him. So, let's build our hope on this faith. Let's have confidence in this faith. May, may faith change us as we pursue the things of God. And may God help us. May God help us to be able to, to, to earnestly seek him and follow in these examples of faith. May God help us to do that. And may God bless you as you pursue him earnestly because you know he exists and he, re and he will reward you. Truth, and I live my.